Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Well, it is a privilege and a joy to be able to uh, open the scriptures and to ponder a great mystery with you today. I uh, was asked by pastor a few weeks ago if I would preach on Trinity Sunday, and uh, I thought that's one of my very favorite Sundays of the whole year. Of course, I would love to do that. Uh, But as I pondered the text, the lectionary text that were read today, uh, the text from Genesis, the the New Testament epistle uh, found in 2 Corinthians, and then that wonderful text we call the Great Commission in Matthew. I found that what we really had going on in those texts is more than simply the mystery of the divine trinity. Now, there's no question that those are prompting points into that mystery. But today, I want to explore three mysteries with you that will intertwine. Uh, I, think, I think it will be interesting. Here's the promise I make to you. I will preach fast. You think fast, and if worse comes to worse, you think slow, I preach long, we'll just quit. Does that sound fair? Uh, The mysteries that I wanted to address are these. The mystery of the divine nature. Well, that'd probably take a few minutes anyway. The mystery of human nature. What does it mean to be human? Why were we created anyway? How does the flourishing of life happen because of that? And then third, the mystery of interpretation. Why do some people even want to say we have alternative facts? When, of course, we don't have alternative facts. We might, though, have alternative interpretations. Why do we have those various interpretations? We're going to put those three things, if we can, a little bit together in this lesson. But before we do, because all preaching is really, well, I prepared and I got all kinds of notes, and then I changed those notes, and then I rearranged those notes, and then I threw away some of those notes. But at the end of the day, preaching only is effective. If the God who reveals God's self as God's self by means of God's self, by the way, whose name is Father, Son, and Spirit, enlivens our heart, and not simply my words, to receive it. So bow your heads with me, and let's invoke him to do just that. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, what's easy to get to is that Genesis text, and that Genesis text tells us something about the person that you and I have been created to be. 
It says something about the mystery of what it means to be human, and this is what it says so profoundly. You and I and we are created in the image of God. Now, that's pretty interesting, right? God creates humanity, and here's the image, to reflect and represent God in creation. So, in order, I'm a teacher, you know that, right? I mean, I was kind of a pe- teacher when I was your pastor a long time ago. I'm, I'm a teacher, and teachers like to hear repetition. Oh, one of the things we do is called testing. I can always do that if you want. But rather than that, why don't we do this? Why don't you just repeat to me a phrase? And it is this, we are created in the image of God. And that is our purpose, to reflect and represent God in the world. Now we have a second mystery we want to start exploring. It's a very interesting mystery. If we are created in the image of God, then what is the image of God? What is the image of God? That's probably a little more complex. What is it? Before I get to that, though, I want to move to the third mystery. How do we interpret? My favorite philosopher, in fact, he's considered the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. He's a German, really. He speaks in German. Uh, His name is Ludwig Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein says in the Philosophical Investigations a very interesting phrase, and I want to give it to you. A picture held us captive, and we could not get outside of it, for it lay in our language. And our language kept repeating it to us inexorably. I pose to you that the most dynamic picture that any of us have, including atheists, is the picture, the conceptual picture of God. Who is God? Maybe to give you a little bit easier way to approach this than good old Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, we'll talk about it in the context of, well, the little boy that went to school. All right, all of our school teachers ought to love this one. Once there was a little boy that went to school. Oh, he loved his school. It was a small school. He could get to the room from the outside. It was a wonderful school. One day his teacher said, boys and girls were going to draw pictures. He thought, oh, I love to draw pictures. And he took out a piece of paper and a pencil. He just started drawing all kinds of pictures. He was drawing pictures of dinosaurs, and he was drawing pictures of bats. He was drawing pictures of mountains, and she said, boys and girls, stop. We're going to draw a picture of a flower. Now, I'll be honest with you, he wasn't terribly excited about drawing flowers, but he decided that he liked flowers anyway, and so he took out his crayons and he started drawing all kinds of flowers. He had yellow flowers and purple flowers and orange flowers. He just had flowers, and she said, Stop! I will show you how to draw a flower. 
and she drew a flower, red, with a green stem. Mm. He liked his flowers a lot more than hers, but he drew his flower red with a green stem. Now remember, what I'm talking about is a picture held as captive, and we could not get outside of it, for it lay in our language, and our language kept repeating it to us inexorably. One day, his teacher came, and she said, oh, boys and girls, we are going to take clay, and we're going to mold the clay, and we're going to make things. And we go, oh, I love to make things. I love to make dinosaurs and elephants. I love to make railroad cars. I love to make things. And she, of course, said, stop. She said, today we're going to make a dish. Now, by the way, this isn't the story, but what little boy wants to make a dish? Come on now. I thought, okay. He started, and she said, stop! We're going to make a deep dish. And she rounded up a ball clay, and she pushed it down, and she made a deep bowl. And so, he didn't like it at all. But, he learned to make a dish, a deep dish. One day, the little boy's family moved to another town. He went into a new school. It was a great big school. He couldn't get to his classroom from the outside, but oh, he came, and one day his teacher said, boys and girls, we're going to draw today. Good. And all the other little boys and girls started just drawing like crazy. But he, being, now I'm adding my own words, a good evangelical, sat there and waited. And she came to him and she said, well, do you not like to draw? He said, oh, I love to draw. I'm just waiting for you to tell me what to draw. And she said, well, draw anything you want. And so he did. This makes me tear up. It makes me so mad. And so he drew a picture of a flower. Red. With a stinking green stem. Now, you and I have a picture he said, oh, I don't have a picture. You have a picture. You have a picture of God. What is that picture? What is that picture? I uh, am a big fan of uh, mythology. Read it all the time. Uh, started out when I was a college student a long time ago the early 70s back at uh, what was then BNC, now good OSNU, and I took two mythology classes. I don't even think we offer that anymore, uh, but both of them from uh, Mrs. Howard, and uh, one was on Greek mythology, which was fantastic. The other was on Norwegian theology, and I love that because I, when I was a kid, I looked at all those comic books about Thor, my uh, major main hero. 
And uh, so I took these classes, and, and, and what I've noticed about mythology across the years is that in most of these dominant myths, you have a dominant god, a warrior god. In the Greek uh, mythologies, you have, of course, the king of the gods, Zeus. And what Zeus is, is a storm god. He has a lightning bolt that he can release. And I'm going to tell you something. That lightning bolt can do some damage. If you go on and you look at Norwegian mythology, I mean, you've got Odin, he's the king of the gods, but the, the coolest god is Thor. You have to admit that. He is a cool god. I mean, he has a hammer, and he also, by the way, is a storm god. And then, in the ancient world, the world that ancient Israel would have come out of, you have the Mesopotamian myth, where Marduk, the king of the gods, the god who can throw lightning bolts, the god who conquered chaos, Tiamat. What a girl. With nothing but his breath and a lightning bolt. Now, what all of those say about the image of God? All of them can be seen in these words. Might makes right. Now, I'm going to jump ahead of myself, and I'm going to say something, then I'm going to come back. But this is what I want to say. I am convinced that the picture that holds almost every one of us captive about the divine nature looks more like Marduk or Zeus or even good old Thor than the picture of God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it breaks my heart. I had all kinds of illustrations I was going to go in here to today. I'm just going to leave you with a just an image. Why is it that our heroes look like Dirty Harry? You're feeling lucky. So what is the image of God? One of the most amazing things of this text is that in the Matthew text, when the 11 disciples met Jesus, did you notice these words? This, this, this is just amazing to me. It says they worshiped. And then it said these words, but some doubted. Now, what they were doubting is that they were seeing Jesus. That's not what they were doubting. What they were doubting is the whole idea of worshiping Jesus. If we're going to understand the triune nature of God, what we have to understand is why the church for the first few hundred years 
even explored this topic that ended up being called God's name is Father, Son, and Spirit. And it all started with this question, who in the world and what in the world is Jesus? It didn't start out with, can we develop a puzzle that no one will believe in, and therefore they have to say uncle in order to be a Christian? It started out with this word, who and what is Jesus? And what they said was this, Jesus is God. Now, immediately that conjures up all kinds of thoughts that, in a sense, it's easier to find what the Trinity is not than to what the Trinity is. I'll be honest with you. And I've already done that little uh, dance at perichoresis a long time ago. So, if you don't know that, just go to the children's department. They know it well. Uh, but but what I want <laughs> to do is talk about what it's not. And here's what it's not. Jesus is not another God. Jesus is not a part of some kind of pantheon. Jesus is not some kind of extra person in God's heaven. There's not two or three gods. And to believe that is to believe something that is very pagan. And by the way, it's called a heresy. Now, here's the, here's the bad ramifications of it. To believe that means that then we get this conjure up, this picture that holds us captive, that Jesus is the little but sweet God. And God the Father is this big one with a lot of power, and he's pretty rough. And so the little sweet God does something that's kind of sleight of hand because how much he loves us, to get the big, powerful God to be willing to accept us and not send us to hell. Now, let me just tell you, if that's your picture, I'm going to tell you this. That's not the one that the church historically has drawn of God. Jesus is God. Now, now, what the church has also said is this. God does, doesn't show up in three different expressions or modes. That's actually another heresy. It's called modalism or Sabellianism. And that is not at all. God doesn't boop, show up in the Old Testament as Father and show up in the New Testament as Jesus. And whoa, He's the Spirit among us now. Because, you see, the, the early church knew something. Jesus was praying to something. Jesus was praying to something. So what in the world is this image of God? Well, let me just say it. God is one, yet three. He is three, yet one. Or another way to say it is this. God in God's singleness is already relationality. Now, that ought to tell us something. God in God's singleness, uniqueness, oneness, called a monad, is already 
dynamically relationality. Another way to say it is this, God is love. Not God loves, He does that. God is love. Now, I've said everything I've said to this point in order to say what I'm about to say, and then I'll say a few other things, and hopefully I'll shut up in a little bit. Here's the reason I've said everything I've said. Not only is Jesus God, this is the most important piece, God is Christ-like. God does not look one thing like Marduk. God does not look one thing like Zeus. God does not look one thing like Thor. God is Christ-like. And so Colossians can say it this way, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Get a hold of that for a second. God does not wear fatigues and carry a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in all the world. And it's not because God doesn't need it. It's because God wins through powerlessness. It's because God doesn't impose something on you and me that God himself is not. God, when he says, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, give the undergarment, love your enemies, is the one who is doing all of the above. That is God. Now, I know right now some of you are going, ooh, I don't know, I don't Dr. Green's stuff. Well, it's not my stuff. It's the stuff of the last 2,000 years. Jesus doesn't carry a carbine. That's the most repulsive picture, by the way, on the internet that there is to me. Somebody say amen. Evangelicals, I'm one of them, have gone to the cliff and jumped off. God is love. Now here comes the other part. That's called orthodoxy or the regular fide, the rule of faith. All right? In other words, if you don't believe what I've just said, I mean, I don't mean you're not going to go to heaven. I mean, who knows who's going there? It means this, you're just really not stamped Christian. That's what it means. You know, I could say that now, that I'm not your pastor, right? <laughs> I do love you, though. That's the reason I'm back. I just love this church. Love you as the people. Love what pastor's doing. Now, let me come back to this. If orthodoxy is this kind of relationality called love, then here's the real question, and this is the one that a Wesleyan has to ask then what does orthopraxy look like? What does the standard rule of life, a form of life that forms us out of a conceptual image that God is Christ-like, what does that look like 
in our lives. Well, we can go through all kinds of things, but here's the one thing I do know. You don't have to be a genius to be able to look at our world and say the image of God is not reflected at least well in human beings. Anybody on Facebook? You ever notice I'm not on Facebook? <clears throat> That's because I want people someday to come to my funeral. <laughs> not only is Facebook stupid, and there's so much bonehead stupid on there that it's spooky. Lynn's on it. I, I kind of spy in through her. But Facebook's mean. It's downright mean. But it's not just Facebook. Am I making any sense to you? And we sit there behind the keys and we do all kinds of stuff. We don't reflect a God who is Christ-like. We do not reflect that. And so what do we do? Well, I've got to now go really fast. So God has to start, and does start, a revolution. And you know, this morning, I cheered up both times of baptism. Beautiful, 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 awesome. You know what baptism means? It means we no longer are the old humanity. We, Romans chapter 6, go read it. We are dead and buried with Christ, and we've risen into the new humanity. We are new creatures. We're a part of the chapter before the second Adam. Oh, man. We live new lives, and therefore, what's that new life look like? Well, it looks like a life that is taking on the baptismal formula. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are being made new in the revolution. Bit by bit, person by person, community by community, until the whole of creation will be made new and the image of God in humanity will reflect back in rightful ways own purpose. Now you say, uh, Dr. Green, I have been baptized and I'm still as mean as a snake. And your spouse is going, that's the truth. They're telling the truth. What do we do? Well, here, here's the deal. It takes a long time to be remade in the image of God. Not me, brother. I'm saved and sanctified, by the way, that means the recovery of the image of God. That's what John Wesley says in my very first sermon, my very favorite sermon. The one thing needful, the one thing needful is the recovery of the image of God in our lives. So I've already been there, done that, seen that. That's true. And you still look a whole lot like the devil, or at least Marduk. 
So what do we do? That brings us to the final benediction in our lectionary text today. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the koinonia, the koinonia, the fellowship, the connectedness of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, what in the world can that mean? Have you ever thought about how do you live in grace? And I'm, I'm, now what I'm talking about is how do we participate in God? You, you cannot logically get to the Trinity. But you can participate in the Trinity. And we do that through grace and love and connectedness. It's the only way. And so what is grace? At least it means this. All is a gift. I love the way pastor says it when you, we come to the Eucharist table. Cup your hands. <laughs> it's not something you can earn, deserve. And I love that. I come just like a little bird chirping for mother's worm uh, when I come to the Eucharist table. Hands cupped. I almost wish I could just stick out my tongue, right? Let somebody else be almost like a priest to me. Just put her right there on the end. I'm a little tiny bird that can't do anything but receive. When I realize that all of life is giftedness, then all of a sudden something happens inside of me. In fact, two things. One, I become incredibly grateful. Two, I become incredibly generous. Did, did you get that? Just barely? That's what happens. And so when I'm hoarding over here or I have pride or even when I have this deep, deep sense of shame or insecurity, what I don't believe is that all of life is a gift. So I would say to you, as I say to my classes on Friday, I call it the Friday dance, keep your eyes open and your ears close to the ground because life comes at you in so many different ways. Recognize it and be grateful. <laughs> what in the world is love? How many of us really live in the love of God? The embrace of God. All is forgiven. All is healed. All is accepted. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Love of God is something to swim in. It's something to frolic in. It's something to enjoy. And as John Wesley says so powerfully, it is spread abroad from us. Am I making sense to you? I'm going to give a test in a little bit. And fellowship, koinonia. It just, it just means sharing or the connectedness of it all. 
I have come to believe that everything, and part of this is, and I, Mark's not even here to correct me uh, on physics, but I, I do believe everything is connected. Quantum has helped me see that. But more than that, I am convinced biblically that everything is connected. And it is by this connectedness that we have through the Spirit of God in our lives that something profound happens. We realize this connectedness with each other. Not just people who agree with me on Facebook. By the way, probably most of you wouldn't agree with me. It's a good thing I'm off. It's a good thing I've never been on. But the connectedness that we have, even to the very place that we would call the enemy. Connected. And so here it is. You say, I still don't understand the Trinity. Oh, join, you know, a few billion people across the last 2,000 years that don't either. They are probably smarter than we are. But what I want to say to you is this. Participate in it. Participate in it. Grace, love, connectedness. One of the things we do around here, it's a wonderful thing, is that we take the Eucharist. I'd like for those who are going to help us to come. The Eucharist is, in a sense, a, a kind of unfolding of this Trinitarian formula. It is the taking of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is participating in God, made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit that makes it vital to us. And so, in a few moments, what I'm going to end up doing, I'm going to pray a prayer of thanksgiving, and then we're going to go through how we will proceed and receive this, but it is an act of receiving and participating in God. And so let's pray. Most good and gracious God, we realize that these elements are simple and mundane. They remind us a lot of ourselves. Little chunk of bread, little sip of juice. And yet it's by the miracle of your presence, that you take that which is simple and mundane and you transform it into a very means of grace whereby your people are able to sustain their lives. We ask today and we give you thanks today for these simple elements and that you will make them to us, these elements a sacrament. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a few moments, uh, we're going to ask you to proceed to uh, different stations that will be across the sanctuary. And uh, the way that we receive the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, uh, communion, is by intinction. And by that, you will take a little piece of bread. In fact, you won't be taking it. It will be given to you. And then after you receive this piece, little piece of bread, you will then take it and you will uh, immerse it uh, just a little bit into the cup. And then you will partake. 
This bread is something that Jesus redefines for us. In fact, it was on the night that he was to be betrayed, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, with a group of people, by the way, who would either betray him or deny him. Right? You feel right at home now, don't you? And he redefines the Passover. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he blesses it. And he hands it to them and he says, this is my body. He then takes the cup. He blesses it. He redefines it. And it is the cup of the new covenant. That which we begin to participate in in baptism. The new covenant in his blood. He also reminds us to be mindful of him and his death until he comes. Now you say, Dr. Green, should, should I really go forward? I, I want to say this to you. If in the sermon today or in any other time of your life you realize your desperate need for the grace, love, and fellowship of God, then there is absolute room for you at the Eucharist table. You say, I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm living right. Well, let me help you. You're not. But there is room for you at the Eucharist table. And so, what I would like for you to do now is all of you stand across the sanctuary, and you will exit from the left. You proceed down the aisle, hands cupped, like a little bird chirping, receiving the bread and the cup of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are also places to pray at these altars. Kneeling benches, I believe, are designated for those who want to be anointed. Please feel free, after you have come receive, to find a place of prayer. And if you need to be reminded of your new covenant relationship, feel free to come. Place your hands in this cold water to jar your memory again that you are the baptized of God.
today with you. We'll start with confessional. The text from 2 Corinthians, really the passage begins with this. Examine yourselves, verse 5, to see whether you are living in the faith. Now you've made a high and lofty thing there, Dr. Green. Are you putting yourself above us? Let me say to you straight up, I am not a grand picture of God. And so I pray the prayer I'm about to pray every single day of my life, and I probably ought to pray it more than once. And by the way, so did John Wesley pray this exact prayer. And here it goes. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. 
and forgive us. Help us delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Father, as we pray that prayer, we say it with a heart that seeks after the one thing needful, the full recovery of your own image in our lives, individually, corporately, and across this planet. We would pray today that you would make us the kind of people in our homes, with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our grandchildren, that would reflect most fully who you are as Christ-like. I pray today that you would not only help us in these ways, but there are many here today who have special needs. Some of them are at these places of prayer, and we have placed our hands upon their shoulder. But Father, you know all of our lives. You know all of our needs. Some of us come needing a touch physically, others emotionally. Some of us need you to make a way through what seems to be a wilderness. Some of us, oh God, need you to bring reconciliation between people that we love and have loved. We ask today that your Holy Spirit would do in and among us what we are not able to do for ourselves. May it be so. Father, as we're reminded every week, there is in this room today one person who hurts more than all the rest of us. None of us know who that person may be. But we believe with all of our heart that you know, that you care. And so as the corporate body, we join our faith together today and ask that you would be with that one who hurts deeper than all the rest of us. Be for them the comforter, the reconciler, the provider, the guide. And now, let us pray together the Jesus prayer that he taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.